I was recently talking to a friend who's a doctor, and he he was saying that uh, that I can't remember what percentage he said, but some very high percentage, the vast majority of everybody he sees, he sees for the same three things, which, if I remember rightly, was flu, back pain, and depression. They said. I can't remember, but very high, like 90%. And maybe, I don't know, one of you or two of you are doctors. You may or may not agree. But he said the vast majority was just these three things. And then he asked me, what are the top three things that you see people for? (laughs) What are the top three uh, yogic maladies? So... I, I found there were a few more than three. And just uh, the last couple of days was was just reflecting a little bit on this. And uh, I've made a top ten. <laughs> so uh, some of them are, are, you know, refer more specifically to meditation. Some of them are more general. But these seem to me, and there may be one or two things I've, that uh, haven't occurred, but these seem to be the... Uh, certainly many of the themes that I, that I explore with people again and again and again. And so I thought just to kind of offer some reflections of, over these, these different themes on this last evening of the retreat that we have together. The first one, might be in many of your minds now, is to do with... Uh, might be somehow put, how do I bring this practice into the rest of my life? Some version of that related to the, the integration and the great difference that seems to be there between what we call my spiritual life and then we got what we call the rest of life, or daily life, or sometimes, God forbid, real life. <laughs> right? I'm sure today I've heard a couple of times people referring to real life as being somewhere else, and then one wonders, what is it? what's this? If, if that, if something else is real life. And in a way, that's the, the essence of the problem, of the split, of the perceived difference, is right there the painful tragedy of dividing life up into this life and that life, into spiritual life, working life, social life, relationship life. With those kind of divisions that are convenient to just describe the different parts of our day, but they're not real divisions, right? Just life. Life has different faces, different facets, different rhythms, different speeds, different degrees of complexity. So these days, uh, one particular rhythm and facet. And then, tomorrow that will change and there will be a different rhythm and facet. Even then, of course, when we look at it, this, these days aren't really one particular rhythm. There's been moments that have felt slow and spacious and easeful. 
and there may be other moments that have felt busy, harried, stressful, like there is in the rest of life. So it's really important, I think, that's not just a nice idea. Oh yes, one life, that sounds good. It's actually a way to really, really, if you're serious about the integration of this practice in your life, or if you're used to coming on retreat and you experience that sense of a kind of uh, a split, sometimes an, an abrupt, shocking sense of difference, then please, please, in, really investigate those, that sense of division. It's not real. And it doesn't need to be there. Rather the possibility of life in its ever-changing rhythms and expressions and facets. Sometimes quieter, sometimes noisier, sometimes more solitary, sometimes more engaged. And I've really been trying to tailor our practice this week towards that. We've paid a lot of attention to transitions, transition from the formality of meditation to the kind of informal presence, and yet staying very alive in that transition. Transitional moments are really important and offer a real lot of opportunity for tracking the, the seeming divisions. And so the, the, the practices that we've been doing in a formal way, but that you're invited into in an informal way, of, of practice, we could call it practicing fluid transitioning, just to give it a fancy title. Of course, because this is a meditation retreat, a lot of emphasis on meditation, we tend to think a lot in terms of integrating this practice into our life of meditation practice. But that's just a little bit, right? It's just a little bit of this practice. If we're interested in freeing the heart, in living fully and freely, there's many, many ways to express that. Kindness is a great practice. Deep listening to others. Great practice. Really listening to another. Reminds us to really listen to ourselves. Really listening to ourselves opens us to really listen to another. And so some sense of oh, the, 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 the preciousness and the possibility of this kind of practice ends when the silence ends. And just changes form a little bit. Cultivating a generous heart. It's a profoundly transformative practice. Giving what we have to give. Giving to those who need our support. Giving our time. Giving our care giving our attention, giving financially. Not only for the good that can do in the giving, but in cultivating what the Buddha called the practice of generosity as a foundation for happiness. It's a happy place to be. 
and feeling generous. Right? We know, we know that warm feeling of giving, of being able to give, of being able to support. And also the the that inculcates in us a sense that I have enough to give, I have resources. Oh, I have enough time for you. I have care for you. I have that willingness for you. You don't need to look very far to find the opportunities to cultivate a generous heart. And of course, that also, the opportunity to cultivate that inwardly as well. As an antidote to the harshness of heart that we sometimes often uh, direct towards ourselves. And, you know, the, the busyness and the noise of our life our life may be more or less busy and noisy, but probably tomorrow will be a bit busier and a bit noisier than today. Right? And for some of us, you may experience your life as rather busy and rather noisy. But busyness and noisiness in themselves are no impediment to practice. They are an impediment to the kind of refinement and subtlety that's available in retreat. Of course they are. Right? That's why we come on retreat. Because there's particular conditions that support that subtlety and refinement. Silence, schedule, sangha, right? the support of others. Three S's. Silence. Well, no, I can't repeat them, of course. Silence, schedule, sangha. Steadiness, stillness, sensitivity. Right? really, really support that kind of refinement and subtlety. That refinement and subtlety that you've, that you've been uh, deepening into over these days, that'll change when, when things are noisier and busier. But the, the orientation doesn't need to change, right? However noisy and however busy things are, when you recognize that you're in some way caught in that noisiness and busyness, there's the opportunity to come back to the orientation that we've been cultivating, even though the degree of refinement and subtlety may be different. The orientation to meet, investigate, and allow what's here. That meeting, investigating, and allowing, which I've been referring to as the three C's, right? Connect, contact, curiosity, care and please if you you know if you want to integrate this into your life trust that process trust that orientation trust presence and things will open up they can't but open up Number two. They're not, they're not in an ascending or descending order, right? It's not like top of the pops countdown. There's just <laughs> ten items. 
Second is kind of related to that, but it's specific to how do I maintain my meditation practice out of retreat. And you know, I'm sometimes quite shocked that I meet people retreat after retreat who love Dharma, love this practice, feel great benefit. No, you might, we meet people who love, seem to love meditation. We, they'll tell us how great meditation is. Right? They'll profess to think of themselves as a lover of meditation. They so like meditation except for actually practicing it very much. <laughs> right? I mean, it sounds tragic comic, but it's true. If you love meditation, meditate. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, I, that's really, or, or like, you know, that's the most essential bit. Don't let the, the, the little details and dramas get in the way. Don't let them. Don't let the, the ridiculous justifications get in the way. Don't let the ideas of, not, of time or space or uh, whatever pet excuse you have, don't accept it. Meditate. Right? So if I was to refine that a little more, because I know, I, I've been around the meditation scene long enough to know that unfortunately that's not good enough, right, <laughs> to just tell you that. Don't set the bar too high, right? Don't be too idealistic. Don't take the schedule home and pin it on the fridge <laughs> and try and follow it. You know, if you, set, if you set the bar high and you're kind of over-idealistic and you have to see for yourself, again, your tendency, for some people, that's the tendency, right, to get gung-ho about it. And then you're not going to manage. And then you're going to, you know, if you set the bar too high and then you don't make the bar, you're engendering a sense of failure. You're engendering a sense of, oh, not managing to do what's actually important for me. Not aligning myself with what I really want to support. One of my teachers calls that castrating your will. <laughs> you don't want to do that. <laughs> Much better to set the bar low. Not so low that, you know, I'll meditate. I make a real sincere commitment to meditate now and then whenever I feel like it. <laughs> right? Don't set the bar so low that you step over it without noticing. But set the bar somewhere where you that actually feels like a little bit of a stretch, but that you 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 feel that's possible. That's uh, that you not just want that for yourself in an idealistic way, but you feel like that that would really fit. And you have to see what that means. And you know, check it out. There's nothing magical about the length of time that we sit here. See what fits for you as a daily practice. It may well not be the length of the 45 minutes that we're often sitting for here. I would say probably not, unless you find that's a natural fit for you. And for most of you, it really won't be. Sit less, 20 minutes, plenty. Should I say that as a meditation teacher? (laughs) Plenty. The regularity is is what's really, really supportive. 
Much better to sit for two minutes really regularly. And of course, once you actually sit down for two minutes, right? if you're going to sit down for an hour, there's all kinds of resistance might be there. But if you two minutes, I can manage. Even if I can still manage a lot of excuses to not sit down for two minutes. Right? It's easier to sit there. And after two minutes, oh, you might find I can manage just a few more. But even if it's just that two minutes, the, the regularity the, is much more important than sitting for some impressive amount of time, hardly ever. The most important moment of meditation is the moment that you actually decide to do it, the moment that you sit down, the moment that you make that orientation that I was just speaking about, right? The moment that you actually commit, not doing the idea, oh yes, I commit to meditation, but the moment you, you let your attention unhook from whatever preoccupations you're involved in. And you let your and you come back to yourself. So don't 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 measure your practice in terms of in in terms of how long it ought to be or how many times uh, it should be or you know see what fits. How long is a useful amount of time? How many days a week really are you going to do that? Every day, right? And then after two days, every day turns into, I'll sod it and stay in bed. Better to give yourself a bit of flexibility. So setting the bar lower and then don't castrate your will. Number three. Relationships. Relationships, you know, people ask a lot about relationships. I'm not a relationship counsellor, right? Relationships are messy. You know, the life of the heart is messy. But we seem to think there's something wrong with relationships being messy. And when something's wrong, we like to blame and we have to see our tendency. Some of us, we have a chronic self-blaming tendency. Some of us have an equally chronic other-blaming tendency. Sometimes we have just a God-blaming tendency. It's either my fault or your fault. Or it's, oh, it's just kind of life has got it in for me. And some of us like to blame all three of those. Relationships are messy. The life of the heart is messy. Is there anyone here who's never gotten into a mess around relationships? Please raise your hand. Please just come up the front, in fact. <laughs> just You can sit up there. <laughs> so I think that's a really good place to start. With recognizing, oh, relationships are... are uh, you know the affairs of the heart are uh, complicated. When we pay attention just to our own life and our own heart, we see, oh, it's it's complicated. There's all the, there's these various pulls and pushes. There's these various kind of uh, squeezes and hurts. These bits of conditioning that kind of ha- impact in in having uh, you know patterns that are difficult to meet, difficult to allow, difficult to feel, difficult to work with. 
So one way of describing a relationship is two people like that, right? Each with messy hearts that have got stuff that's difficult to meet and difficult to work with and difficult to hold. Coming together, and not just coming together like that, but then intermingling all their messy hearts. So, I think a wise way to be in relationship is to not expect it to be easy. You know, we've got this terribly, this kind of fairy tale conditioning about happily ever after. But it seems to be that the pattern of relationships is that first you fall in love, and it's great. And then after some time, shorter or longer, the very things that at first seemed so cute, so endearing about that person, start to seem really annoying. I remember an Indian teacher when, uh, a long time ago sitting at a retreat in India giving the example of his wife's hair. And first, oh, darling, your hair is so silky, so beautiful, so lovely. And then he finds a hair, her hair in his soup. <laughs> he says, what's this hair in the soup? Mm-hmm. So the, the lovely turns into the unlovely. Right? Even if that turning is just in our own uh, perception. So what happens after a while, you know, the initial kind of endorphin rush, the initial oh, flutteriness, the, 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 the kind of that exquisite, yeah, the flutter of falling in love runs out. Like, like everything runs out. Like nothing, no feeling can sustain. And the, the feeling of being in love, just like anything else, can't sustain. So then what happens? Then what happens? Seems to be that one of three things happens. One is the relationship kind of dies on the inside. We just resign ourselves to that's what relationship is now. (laughs) (laughs) And just, you know, go on, go on. And go on, and we don't really speak to each other anymore. And then there's so resentments build up, and there's so much unsaid that we don't even know how we would begin to say it. And people are maybe living in the same house, but there's no real relationship left at all. Another thing happens is that we just uh, we kind of give up, and then go and find another one, and usually repeat the same pattern again. Not necessarily all the way through, but you probably have noticed yourself that the things that seem to be the problem this, with uh, in the relationship, usually the relationship meaning <laughs> him or her, strangely enough, when we change relationship often, it's the same kind of things. They might have a slightly different character, a different face, a different... Uh, a, a, a slightly different dynamic, but this is the same pinch in the heart gets stirred up. So the other thing that also can happen there is that you begin the work, the practice of relationship. And you know the practice of relationship is very similar 
actually to the practice of being in a monastery. They seem very different, but sexuality is the only real difference. There's the, you know, the, 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 I compared to the monastery because, of course, that's where this practice comes from. I'm being practiced in a monastic environment where you get to see yourself. Uh, I was going to say rubbing up against other people. <laughs> that's not quite right. The monks might not appreciate me describing monastic life like that. <laughs> <laughs> you see yourself, you know, getting provoked, getting, getting, uh, you know, the the, the friction of, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> and there's something, there's something that's that's challenging, that's exposing, that uh, feels very vulnerable in relationship, whereby those we're closest to, the people we're in relation, intimate relationship with, get to see us in a way that nobody else does. And not the prettiest way, right? They get to see us at our most, what, petty, needy, um, etc., etc. And that's very valuable, actually, if we're willing to use that, if we're willing to, to um, which is a challenge, if we're willing to be conscious in the midst of being needy or petty or jealous or... Uh, you know, whatever gets stirred up for you in relationship. There's a particular kind of real, you know, inner work of the heart that can happen in relationship. It's very close to the to as I say the same thing in a monastic community. A kind of it's like a, a cauldron, like a pressure cooker, right? Where you get to cook. And so that's the invitation of relationship, to let yourself cook in it. To let yourself, you know, for it to be a sangha, a community of support. Another thing that's very connected with uh, with the stuff about relationships is, I think, one of the fundamental misunderstandings in Dharma teachings about attachment. People will often say, "Well, how, you know, how this stuff?" I, the, starting from the assumption that I'm supposed to be unattached or non-attached or even worse, detached. How can I maintain a relationship with partner or, or children and be non-attached? You can't. I would say, don't even try. The idea of non-attachment, or as I say, worse, detachment, is a is a unfortunate, poor, clumsy translation. And so, if you're not if you're not so familiar with Buddhist teachings, there's the, this term upadana, or anupadana, is often translated as as uh, attachment and non-attachment. And the impression that it gives non-attachment is some kind of removal, some sort of distance. And if you look. Carefully, often, that's what people are trying to do with their practice, somehow trying to get some distance from, to, to somehow protect the heart from feeling, actually. The word upadana is, is better translated as clinging, 
and anupadana rather than non-attachment as uh, as unclinging, rather a kind of open, uh, an an untight, an unrigid relationship, a free relationship. But meanwhile, the life of the heart, partners, families, children, is very much about attachment. A deep, loving, intense, exquisite, uh, both ecstatic and agonic, agonizing (laughs) attachment. It's painful to love. My daughter has just... uh, She's been away for five months now. So she she finished school last summer and she's going to university uh, this this autumn. And she's been in Australia and New Zealand for the last four or five months. It's painful. It's painful. I look at pictures of her. It's like, ah! You know? It's also it's beautiful as well. There's this kind of flourishing of her, that kind of threshold between childhood and adulthood, and that kind of adolescent, simultaneous sort of empowerment and sense of all the possibility of the of adult life and all the, you know, going to the other side of the world and leaving behind who she has been and all the possibility of newness, and beautiful. And then. Sometimes also just still feeling like a little girl. I hope she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> still feeling, you know, like a little girl on her own, the other side of the world. And it's meant we've had a very beautiful quality of contact using Skype and just checking in and staying in touch. But there's also a kind of grief in it for me. It's like, you know, the loss of a child in some ways. And realising, oh, that family unit that we've lived in for, for the last uh, years and years is finished over she will be lucky if she comes back for any more than a week at a time from now on right so what do i do so oh well i ought to be non-attached <laughs> you know that would be really disrespectful to my daughter to the to the love that's there so i think there's a real there's often a problem with these kind of erroneous ideas around attachment right the nature of Intimacy and passion and the, the, the aching beauty of love involves that kind of, you know, the tugs on the heart. The most, some of the most beautiful, important, sublime expressions of human life. It would be a shame to shrink from the life of the heart through a misguided idea about non-attachment. Number four. Work. People ask about working life in lots of different ways. It's a very, it's a, it's a wanting to have ethical work, wanting to have meaningful work, wanting to have satisfying work, wanting to have work that feels aligned with our deepest ideals, wanting to have work that that feels like it supports uh, Dharma practice. It's it's, uh, it's tricky. Again, I don't I don't uh, purport to have answers particularly to that. If you're fortunate 
And of course, it's not just a question of fortune because it's about the, the, the choices you make and the degree to which you align yourself with what's really important for you. But if, if possible, it's really, really supportive to be able to do what you most love. And sometimes for various reasons, we don't do what we love. We don't do what we love because we, we, because of we were been drummed into us that it's not the right thing to do by parents or teachers or something. We don't do what we love because we, we're scared to do what we love. Scared of failing in it or uh, something. There's a lot, of, a lot of nuances to all of that. But I think if you, if you can recognize the, the, the great, deep, supporting value, of course, first you have to find it, you have to know what it is that you really love. And that's a whole other piece. So I would say, if you're fortunate, if you know what it is that you long to do, that's not a job, but a vocation, that feels like a sense of your calling, your passion, or what you want to bring into the world, offer the world, do in the world, then don't let petty concerns get in the way of that. If you have the opportunity, do what you love. And may not have the opportunity for one or other reason. What you love may be fantastically impractical in terms of making a living. So you can still do it, but it might not be the, the, the way you make your living. For whatever reason. Then I think you can also really make a practice out of loving what you do. (coughs) Bringing the qualities of love to what it is that you do. That means the qualities that we've been exploring here. Sincerity. Close attention. Care. There's a lot of very beautiful, transformative qualities that you can cultivate in the in the relationship you have to the to the tasks and responsibilities and engagements and uh, relationships that go with the world of work and if you feel that you're not doing what you love and you feel that within your working life you can't love what you do that you can't that there isn't room that the the working environment or the nature of the work is such that you that it it doesn't allow the cultivating of sincerity and care and sensitivity and kindness along with along with it then i would say you might want to ask yourself some very serious question about whether you can carry on supporting that so a shorthand version do what you love, or love what you do, or do something else. <laughs> Number five, sleep. People ask me a lot about sleep, more than I would have thought. <laughs> No, but really, a lot of people have a lot of trouble with sleep. And 
Ah, uh, it's just, it's a, a very real source of anxiety and fear, and it's when you know it's very close to our sense of uh, security or kind of survival capacity. Just like we can get very very uptight and needy around food, in the same way we can get very anxious around sleep. They're both things that if we if we're upset around. Like if you're deprived of food for some time, you might notice if you get ang- if you get hu- really hungry, food isn't available. For some people, more than others, it can really stimulate a lot of uh, difficulty, anxiety, panic. And similarly, sleep. You know, sleep really conditions our well-being to a, to some significant extent, and so it's a very difficult, painful thing if you have trouble sleeping or you feel like you don't sleep enough. And there's a big piece in there about feeling like I don't sleep enough. And seriously, I would say, the most tiring thing about lack of sleep is all that telling yourself that you didn't get enough. So if you, if you don't sleep, if you wake up in the night, don't, please don't lie in bed trying to get to sleep. That's torture. And it doesn't work. Right? The one thing that's definitely a characteristic of sleep is it's the absence of trying. When trying to do anything stops, then there's a kind of the descent into sleep happens. Trying to sleep is, is fruitless and futile and frustrating. Three F's. <laughs> Get up. If if you if you uh, if you wake up in the night and you can't sleep, try get up, make good use of the time. Get up, drink tea, read, meditate, go for a walk, clean the house. Really, and then when you feel tired, then go back to bed. And don't read in bed. Really, get up. Don't hang out in bed, not sleeping, and wishing you were asleep. It's a disaster. And um, and the other th- just the other thing about that is to really pay attention to not n- don't compare don't measure the next day don't look back and think how little you slept or how you didn't sleep enough or how you really need to sleep or what it's going to be like for the rest of the day. Just do what you do, and then sleep when uh, opportunity presents itself. I know that sounds very simplistic, but if you if you Somebody, and several of you have, have asked me about it this retreat, and as I said, it's really common. If you're somebody who suffers around sleep, just to look at your relationship with it, and particularly your relationship with it, you know, both in the moment of waking, what you do, and just doing something to break that pattern, and then your relationship to it the next day, when you're either looking back to how much you didn't sleep, or you're looking forward to how you're going to get through the day without sleep. If you're tired, let yourself be tired. Somebody actually spoke quite beautifully about this sense of tired, tired limbs, tired, tired. And yet in allowing the tiredness, something wakeful in the midst of the tiredness. And often we push against tiredness, it can feel very threatening. And just by shifting the relationship, being softer with it, allowing yourself to be tired and doing what needs to be done until you can sleep.
can really change around what can be anxious, painful, uh, very troublesome relationship with sleep. Six is to do with um, trauma and abuse and kind of just very painful uh, past history and the psychological fallout from that. And two things I just would like to say about that. One is... In, from a perspective of Dharma practice, the importance and doesn't just apply to trauma and abuse, it applies to actually to any painful psychological pattern, right? And and that means it applies to everybody. But particularly, uh, it's a particularly acute when the form of painful psychological pattern is a, is acute, as it is with uh, with abuse and other kinds of trauma. Gentleness is really, really important. Holding yourself gently. You know? the, the essence of a painful psychological pattern, the, the shock that's, that's in it as residue, you know, the, the leftover of what wasn't there at the time of the shock or trauma or abuse. What wasn't there was safety, was holding, was protection. Right? And while we can't do anything about the past situation, one can provide now safety, holding and protection for the residue of the experience. And I think I spoke just uh, yesterday or the day before about this mudra of a kind of like a like a mother holding a distressed child. Now that kind of gentle holding, allowing your experience bit by bit to unfold, and it might feel too much to let it all in, and just letting yourself hold a little bit of it. There's, it's, I mean, we all really, really need gentleness. In whatever way, in whatever our history, and whatever psychological uh, painful patterning we are in touch with, it's part of developing a human sense of self that bits get left behind. Right? That, there's, that there's some ways in which it would have been imp- it's impossible actually as a child forms an ego it's impossible for that forming ego to have gotten completely met and allowed and held and and uh protected in every way that it needed to be it's just impossible impossible because parents aren't perfect impossible because environment isn't perfect impossible because situations aren't perfect And yet, in various ways, gentle, allowing, holding seems to be one of the things that we find it most hard. We're much more comfortable often with a kind of harsh, berating, uh, criticizing. 
It's one of the most significant uh, ways we can we can transform our relationship with ourselves, right? The quality of inner care that we have by consciously creating, consciously uh, uh, holding our experience in that way, gently. And the care aspect, right, of the three C's. And just really emphasizing that quality, sometimes even just with uh, being mindfulness of breathing. You know. It's just emphasizing a sense of gentle awareness, caring awareness, allowing awareness, cradling awareness. And the other, the other piece of that is sometimes I think we put an un, unhelpful pressure on ourselves for meditation to have to be the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. To have to do all the work of, uh, of inner understanding and transformation. And to look at other forms of inner work somehow sometimes feel like threatening to our meditation process practice or invalidating it's like oh well if i go and do something else to deal with this problem that's that's going to somehow imply that i i've failed at meditation or that meditation itself is invalid in some way and that's clearly just not true right but we easily get into that kind of thinking and so for some things some things that seem particularly acute, intense, painful, and that, and that, uh, and that, that um, just keep on getting re-stimulated. Things that don't seem to respond particularly to our best efforts to meet them meditatively. Sometimes it's just it's wisdom to, to find some other way to meet them. And some and various forms of therapy, for example, are really, really, really skilled at working with acute psychological painful patterns, and particularly abuse and trauma. And you know, I think that in many ways, the psychotherapeutic understanding is the West's great contribution to inner transformation. The East's great contribution is a, 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 a breathtakingly, a breathtaking kind of understanding of the post-personal realms. Right? That which is beyond just personality, ego. My sense of me as a separate being from the rest of life. And the, the, the great contribution of the classical Eastern traditions is the kind of is the the invitation into the vaster, freer, impersonal realms of being, where the little the stuff of self isn't the main attraction, isn't such a big deal, right? Where it can be seen as content freely moving in awareness in the way that we've been exploring. But the West's great contribution is the understanding of how those structures of personality get. Uh, stunted or uh, frozen or, or uh, yeah, distorted in some ways, and how to and how to uh, how to process some of that, which we've also been exploring right, in different ways. 
sense of allowing ourselves using the the meditative curiosity to to let old um, yeah, characters structures be be met. But sometimes, again, you have to see for yourself. But particularly if you've, if you've, you know, sometimes given a lot of sincerity to this kind of practice, but you feel, you might feel, all of us, wow, I've been doing this, these many years of Dharma practice, and so many things in my life have opened up, transformed, liberated. Things that used to get a painful grip on my mind just don't anymore. And yet, there's this thing that doesn't seem to have been much affected that does still get a grip on me that does seem to impact painfully and maybe still just as painfully so don't just bang your head on the brick wall of your practice I'm not sure that's a good (laughs) you can scratch that bit but we wouldn't describe our practice in that way but you know might be wisdom too to explore something else, and just to 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 that note that to explore something else doesn't invalidate the the important work that you may have done in this arena. How are we doing? Ten past number seven. Do I need a teacher? Um, yes, <laughs> but that can look like very different things for different people. You know, it's it's the the the, the realms of inner work and understanding are complicated, right? They're complicated by all our all our uh, stra- strange strategies and habits, etc., etc. So having some wise guidance is really, really, really helpful. But that looks different for different people, and it's also different at different times. So it may be that uh, the relationship with the teacher is in this kind of form, right, in doing retreats. One may feel the benefit of uh, doing retreats generally, and uh, regardless of the, who the teacher is, not maybe regardless, but with different teachers, and for others might feel a certain affinity to one or two teachers, and uh, that uh, that feels more helpful or more appropriate. And then one might feel the wish to kind of uh, connect more, and then you might listen to uh, teachings and talks that might be online, or you might read the books, etc., of the teacher. And then it might... Uh, it might feel that despite that kind of contact, there's a need for for a more kind of a, a fine tuning of the way you're practicing, and particularly that might happen as there's a growing degree of commitment and depth to your practice, and then there's the opportunity to to. Speak with teachers and see what what they might offer, and that increasingly, you know, we're we're able to offer uh, a more personal contact that would have been possible uh, previously, like using Skype and the internet and things like that. So, but sometimes, and you have to depend. Some people feel very wary of. 
uh, a close relationship with the teacher. And on the other side, conversely, some people feel very... Um, <laughs> like... Uh, not greedy isn't the right word, but like they something that wants to just kind of latch on and grab hold of and and shake a teacher till they can get everything to fall out. <laughs> so that's also a, a question to see if one's tendency falls one side or the other of that, and to actually have the wise discernment to see what the need is. What's the need? And the need, as I say, it changes over time. And the more depth and the more commitment there is to one's practice over time, the more helpful it can be to establish a more uh, a finer or more intimate or more connected, more individual relationship with the teacher. And the other thing to say about that is, I think that it's different for different people in terms of the relationship to teacher or teaching or tradition. Three T's. <laughs> Some people find that if they, if they listen to different teachers or go to different kinds of uh, teachings, they get confused. Right? Oh, but he says this and she says that and, and, uh, and you don't know how to practice or how to attend or how to kind of hold your view. And so for some people it's really, really helpful to kind of stick to one thing and give your heart to it, right? And go deeply into that. And that may endure like that for years. And nevertheless, after some years, it may be that that practice, that teacher, that teaching somehow leaves, leaves you. That it's, you've, it's run its course. And then maybe uh, that it switches to something else. Again, the switching can be quite shocking because it can seem like, oh, well, if I'm to switch from something that I've invested so much time and heart in, that, that it, the switching somehow invalidates that. It doesn't. But it can feel like that. And for other people, it, the opposite's true. To just to, to commit to one uh, teaching or one tradition or one teacher feels uh, confining, limiting, reductive, unhelpful. And that it's a need to respond to one's inner kind of uh, movement to have the inner freedom to, to, to take whatever fits, whatever contributes. And I think, again, it's important to just to make that discernment for yourself. And there's not a right way or a wrong way or a better way, right? It's just to find what fits. Number eight. I think I, I, I referred to this a little bit over the, the last days, but it's to do with the the idea that I had some great experience and then I lost it yeah of course that's what happens to experiences right they come and they go the great benefit of something that we might call deep experience or a spiritual experience or a blissful experience or a a unity experience or something like that the great benefit of it isn't in the quality of the experience, which, of course, feels impressive, wonderful, uh, 
uplifting, uh, unusual. That's why they're called peak experiences, right? because oh, they're kind of in, on this rarefied level. And then the experience goes, and oh. And like we've explored, you know, the tendency to want to recreate the experience, and in the trying to recreate it, the setting up all kinds of conditions for struggle and disappointment. But the the real great benefit of those kind of experiences isn't the quality of the experience, it's the understanding that's known in that moment. There's some kind of very, very expanded experience. There's some truth that's known about the inclusive nature of life. The intimacy that our being has with the rest of life. For example, so in in those cases, let that be your treasure, the knowing, right? The knowing that's undoubtable, unshakable, very, very clear in the midst of the experience. Often people have those experiences, and as somebody was saying this week, it's like you kind of remember those extracts from books you've read or teachings you've heard that confirm the truth of the experience. Now that's the treasure. That, what there's, that it, can, it can deepen your sense of trust in and conviction around and love for the practice you do and the authenticity that you know it's got to it. Right? Let yourself know the authenticity of that knowing, the goodness of your practice. Use it to, to, to feed your love of your practice and let the experience go. Number nine. There isn't a number nine. Number ten. <laughs> I thought top nine didn't sound very good. So better top ten, but without number nine. I'm just going to try and speak briefly about number ten because time is going on. But number ten something to do with... Um, rebirth or reincarnation and not self and the troubling paradox so it might go something like if the Buddhists believe in rebirth no, if the Buddhists say there's no self then what gets reborn? it's a very good question Buddhists don't have a satisfactory answer. So this might not be much of an issue for some of you, but for those of you familiar with Buddhist teachings and familiar with the teachings of not-self or sometimes the badly translated or badly misunderstood version called the idea of no-self, and just to tweak that, you know, the Buddha never said, the Buddha never said there's no-self. And did point to really investigating everything that appears as being self, everything we take ourselves to be, and seeing, is that true? Is that, what, who am I taking myself to be? And what happens if I investigate that? And he pointed out, and please don't take his word for it, right? but look and see, he pointed out that everything that we turn to that seems to be who I take myself to be, when we really explore it, it opens up. And we find 
space and we find movement and we find dynamism and we find the aliveness of our being. But we don't find anything that we can latch on to. So people get very caught up in, in strange or wrong or unhelpful or confusing ideas around not-self or no-self. The invitation is to study, not study as in book, but study in the way we've been doing, studying our experience. Study your sense of self. Normally, our sense of self is just, just reactive. Right? And just reacts to life from the sense of me and you, this and that, here and there. Subject, object. No, practice leads us in to, to, to see as well as we can, as deeply as we can, as often as we can, as much as we can. Who am I taking myself to be? The reflection that we introduced the first evening. It's not important to land in a view. Views are dead things. There is a self. That's a view. There isn't a self. That's a view. Both of them are equally useless. There's a great freedom in being willing, and we often don't like the uncertainty of it, right? We like it with the certainty of a view. But there's a freedom in not landing in a view, to be free from the affirming of self and free from the negating of self. Instead, oh, here I am. There's life here. There's energy here. There's content here. There's contact here. There's feeling here. What's this? So teachings are, aren't, aren't, asking, aren't trying to be something for us to believe in, right? They're an invitation to come back to where we began. An invitation to look and see. So it's my hope that these reflections are supportive helpful, food for thought, and that, uh, that you're able to uh, apply some of them, to recognize yourself in some of them. be free of all the fetters. So, come on. One of those old stilted Pali words. Free from impediments. Free from obscurities. Free from painful patterning. Free from inner tyranny. Free from confusing views. 
free to be touched deeply by life. Free to touch others deeply in life. The goodness and sincerity of our practice really serve both our own deepest welfare, each one of us, and that of all those we have contact with. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.